0: Well, the, the day we have all dreaded has come. So I have three, um, three populations I want to I thank. First of all, uh, thanks to the Lord and thanks to this congregation for allowing me to preach this, this morning. Um, second, a thanks to the congregation and also friends, uh, because I know the World Cup is this morning. And so you have uh, sacrificed that to worship the Lord. Um, in the words of Kevin Durant, y'all are the real MVPs. Um, and and lastly, a thanks to to my family. Some of you may have noticed that the black adult population of this church has tripled. <laughs> I I flew I flew and drove in my my amen corner. So so you. <laughs> You've all let me, like, teach Sunday school and do the liturgy from time to time, but now I get to do a sermon, and the text is on ethnic division and the gospel and union with Christ. Now, the title that you were given kind of over the course of the past week was uh, Peter and Paul and Galatian Racism. I'm going to switch the title because I just want to call it It's a Gospel Issue. And so some are going to think... Uh, but Malcolm, discussions of, of, of the Jew and Gentile distinction and discussions of racism, particularly in this country, these are different discussions, yes, but there are a lot of similarities. And so we're not going to run from those similarities this morning because our desire is that the Lord would transform us holistically. And so we've got to, so we've got to look at the world the way that it is. And so I want you all to gird your loins for this one because we're going to stay close to the text. I mean, I might refer to Black Panther because it's the only movie that really matters. Um, <laughs> hashtag Wakanda forever. But besides that, for the next hour and a half... Oh, okay, 40 minutes, fine. Um, besides that, it's going to be the text, our savior, and our lives for the next 40 minutes. Is that all right? All right. So today we're continuing in our, survey, in our series on messy lives in the Bible, where we remind ourselves that the scriptures are not just a hall of fame of super saints, but we're looking at uh, history, letters, and parables that outline the deep, deep sin of humankind and the glory and grace of our Lord. This week is no different. So last week we dealt with egregious sin, sexual assault, murder, and coveting, and David treating those things as though they were trivial in the story of David and Bathsheba. This week we have a sin that appears to be trivial, that is revealed by Paul to be egregious. So before we get to the text, I have a story to tell you. And to tell it, I have to go back to the 1850s. Now, if you know me, you know that very few good things I talk about happen in the 1850s. But we're going to do it anyway. So we're going to go to to South Africa in 1857, specifically the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. Now, If you know anything about the Dutch Reformed Church, just the theology, in most cases, just beautiful, beautiful stuff. This story is not so beautiful. At their general assembly, a group of white members had a petition. In this petition, they requested permission to celebrate the Lord's Supper separately from black members. Now, this had happened 30 years before in 1829, and at that point, the Synod had decided, actually, no, we gather and eat the Lord's Supper without distinction of color. And, I'll add, because that would be dumb and contrary to the gospel. But, in 1857, they reversed that decision. Instead, making an allowance for the weakness of some. What was the outcome of this allowance? Well, different Lord's Supper services for black and white South African Christians. But what else did that lead to? It also encouraged the church to construct a theological edifice to support that evil practice which set them up to be supporters of that institution that everyone knows South Africa for, apartheid. What began as a concession quickly became a rule. What began as, these, as, the, as the leadership making this concession to these members became, well, the church, the church was one of the main supporters of South African apartheid. No one is free from this risk. As a matter of fact, ethnic division has always been an issue that the gospel has spoken specifically to. It's not an implication of the gospel. It's literally in the gospel. Case in point, Peter and Paul. And so let's hear the word. I'm actually, I'm reading reading the scripture this morning too, so. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Reading from Galatians chapter 2. Verses 11 to 21. It's on page 973 in the Bibles in front of you. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. This is Paul, Paul speaking. For, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Heavenly Father, I come before you as a wretch upon whom you have placed a great privilege and a a mighty burden, the preaching of your word. Lord, by your spirit, soften my heart and soften the hearts of these hearers. Convict us, forgive us, and equip us to do gospel work in in your world. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your spirit. Amen. So before we get to this particular text, a text that's basically, it's the lifeblood of the book of Galatians, let's get oriented to the book. And so of all of Paul's letters, this is probably the most upset that Paul gets in scripture. As a hint, Paul usually begins his letters with a greeting and thanksgiving, grace and peace to you from our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he goes into how great the Father and the, and, and the Son are, but not so with the Galatians. He does that for a sentence and then immediately moves into rebuke. No time for niceties, it's time to throw down. Now, why is that the case? Well, shortly after the Galatians believed the gospel, some troublemakers showed up, attacking Paul's credibility and preaching a false gospel, saying that the Galatians needed to not only believe in Christ, but they also needed to be circumcised. Now, Paul, being the the authoritative champion of the gospel that he is, would not let that happen. And so after spending the first chapter and a half dealing with that, he hones in on Peter, the appointed apostle to the Jews. Now, if you know anything about Peter, uh, Peter is a great, hugely influential guy in the, in the, early, in the early church. He's part of, part of Jesus' core group of, of disciples, and he's one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church in, in Christianity's earliest years. But he's also known for royally screwing up at times. Uh, most of those times are recorded in the, in the Gospels, but this one is in Galatians. And so we're going to take a close look at the text. So I've got, I've, got, I've got three points, three kind of movements we're going to go through. First, what Peter did, that is the sin. Two, how Paul responded, not only what he said, but how he said it. And third, the gospel, that is union with Christ. First up, the sin. So for that, let's take another look at, at verses 11 to 13. We know it's serious from Paul's response. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul didn't just take him aside and talk to him privately. He didn't just say, hey, Peter, I noticed that you did this thing, and it's not a good look. We might want to work this out. Instead, what he says is, in effect, what you have done has actively cut against the work of Christ. Paul opposed him to his face because he was condemned or guilty. Some translations will have to blame. That's a little soft. Condemned, guilty. Sounds about right. Now, the language is stark. And necessarily so. Because what has Peter done? If you want a picture, Peter is having, we'll say he's having breakfast with some Gentile friends. And he's enjoying the second greatest gift of the gospel. If you didn't know what that is, greatest gift is union with Christ. Bacon is a close second. (laughs) So, So he's having breakfast with the Gentiles. And then a party of Jews show up and he backs up. Now, this isn't really a thing that most of us do, not least because we're mostly a Gentile audience, so this is kind of weird. But that doesn't mean that we don't, that, that we don't commit this exact sin. What Peter has done, Peter has capitulated to the fear of man, and he has exalt, and he's exalted his ethnic identity over other much more important identifiers. He has communicated through his action that who he spends time with and who he acknowledges as worthy has more to do with his own personal identity than Christ's identification of these people as his neighbors, his brothers, and his sisters. Peter has committed the sin of the antebellum white American pastor who initially preached against slavery and then under pressure from his peers looked past the real suffering of African slaves and returned to a tacit approval of white supremacy. Peter has committed the sin of the black pastor who, tempted to value himself and the people who he serves through the eyes of others, rebukes his congregation for shouting and dancing to the Lord because white people would never accept such Africanisms. Peter commits the sin of the pastor who, after a lynching had just been committed in his town, spent the next Sunday morning preaching about a saloon because that affects the community more than the burning alive of a black man. Peter committed the sin of the everyday Christian who tends to think that the way that we do things is just the way that things are done. The everyday Christian who doesn't do the work of distinguishing between culture and the gospel. And Peter's sin is not just an individual one. It is a public one. You'll notice from the text that when Peter withdrew from his Gentile neighbors, the rest of the Jews withdrew with him Even Barnabas, the encourager. Barnabas has a great reputation in the scripture. Paul's Paul's drawing attention to Barnabas because he's like, even Barnabas got pulled away by this. Brothers and sisters, our sin is never private and it never stays confined to ourselves. People are watching and looking to you for guidance, especially if you're in some kind of authority, whether at home or at work or in some other context. Parents, your children are watching and internalizing your habits. If they see your commitment to the word in the midst of adversity, they may soak that up. But if you flee to anxiety, or if you flee to the bottle, or if you flee to anger, your children will see that as well. And when Peter non-verbally communicated, you know what, we don't need to eat with those people. His fellows heard him and they followed suit. When we, create cat- when, when we create categories like this and use them to guide the way that we build our relationships, the people around us notice. In Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson, a book that everyone in the congregation should read, the authors note that most American Christians have social circles that are racially isolated. As in, white people have social circles that are they're almost entirely white, black people have circles that are almost entirely black, so on and so forth. Now, when I bring up this statistic, there's one thought that undoubtedly surfaces. Someone will say, but Malcolm, people just naturally gravitate toward people who are like them. To which I respond, yes, well, people also naturally sin because we're born in iniquity. (laughs) Just because something is natural doesn't mean that it's either defensible or righteous. But, of course, there will still be a response to this, and someone will continue, but but Malcolm, my neighborhood is almost entirely of a particular race or ethnicity. To which I would respond, do you know why that is the case? Because we can talk about why that is the case. And the discussions of redlining and sundown towns and things like that probably won't be fun. We are not to be driven by our sinful nature, which tells us to surround ourselves by people who will just kind of build us up. But rather by the new nature that we have in Christ, but... I'm getting ahead of myself because that's the hope, and we need to spend some more time sitting in the, sitting in the guilt and the shame of sin. It's an important part of repentance. you gotta, you got to sit in it for a little bit. Peter's sin is the sin of hypocrisy. Peter is communicating with those around him that his ethnicity in itself has some salvific meaning before God, such that it ought to determine who he, who he can be seen with and who he can eat with. I'm reminded of the words of a critically acclaimed Nigerian author, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who came to the United States and realized that she was black. Realized that she was black? What does that mean? Well, it means that that's not really a category in Nigeria. Ethnicity? Sure. Class? Of course. Religion? Yes. Gender? Yes. But color? No, it's a a meaningless category. But she says that when she came to America, she found that here, Black means something. And for many, that's not a good thing. I want to be clear here, especially for the sticklers, the discussion of Jew versus Gentile and discussions of racism are diff- they're different discussions, yes. But if the Jew-Gentile distinction, which is a pretty significant distinction with actual meaning in the scriptures, that Paul that Paul is perfectly willing to talk about, but if that doesn't mean anything when it comes to acceptability before God, no category that you or I create whether it's race or anything else, can have that kind of effect. But this is is pernicious for, for us because we live in what is called a racialized society. For those unaware of that terminology, it means that we live in a society where race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, in life opportunities, and social relationships. That's a fact, and it's one that I'm personally reminded of regularly, and so it's a reality that we have to come to grips with. There are other categories, whether it's gender, class, or others, but those are other sermons. This is about the particularly pernicious effects of claiming the superiority of a particular ethnicity or race, a sin that is and has been practiced here from the country's inception. Slavery didn't end in the Civil War, and most white Christians weren't abolitionists. Racism didn't stop after the Civil Rights Movement, yet another thing that a a majority of white Christians weren't involved in, and it didn't stop after the election of Obama. And we don't need election statistics and all that kind of stuff. That's all good. So hopefully we're all a little, bit, a little bit uncomfortable, right? All right. So let's move to part two. What Paul says and how he says it. So Paul comes in and diagnoses the problem in verse 14. He says... Um, that I saw that Peter had just made a little honest mistake. No, uh, no, no, actually, that's not, that's not what it says at all. Um, what he actually says is he saw that Peter literally wasn't walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Here's the gospel, and here's where Peter was taking people. This is, according to Paul, an outright denial of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he asked Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you said back in Acts 15 that there there was no difference between Jew and Gentile before God. Why do you shrink back from them now? And so Paul asked this question publicly because Peter has sinned publicly, and he's dragged a number of people down with him. Now, this is not an excuse to go around rebuking your boss in front of your coworkers or rebuking your friends in front of your other friends just willy-nilly, just rebuking, rebuking, rebuking. Wisdom and prudence must be exercised. But as an example, some of us have family members. Some of us have very close family members who we know make racist jokes and ignorant comments, diminishing the humanity and dignity of certain individuals, whether in person or on Facebook, because sanctification does extend to Facebook. <laughs> and everybody just chuckles or, or dismisses it, thinking, oh, that's just Uncle Joe. He's just set in his ways. That is an excuse, brothers and sisters. Get your people. Paul will encourage us later in the book of Galatians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And in this book as a whole, Paul is doing that work. Paul is battling for the truth of the gospel before a vulnerable population. And what appears to be a momentary misspeaking, or what appears to be just an innocent choosing of company, can very easily be a denial of the good news. And so Paul pulls out the big guns of verses 15 and 16, which have been understood to be the thesis statement of the book, and... I got something I want to say about that statement. But let's read 15 and 16 again. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is still part of his response to Peter. But here's my controversial statement of the day. Justification is a big part of the gospel, but it ain't the whole thing. Like James Brown says, the the whole show's coming. But right now, we, we do have to understand what justification is, and Paul's goal here is to reveal why what Peter has done is contrary to what justification is. And so here's the gist of these two verses. We Jews were given the law. God straight up told us, do this, and you will live. And we tried it. As a matter of fact, I, Paul, like I was really, really good. But each, but also each and every one of us failed and continue to fail miserably. Do you know how hard it is not to lie? How hard it is not to envy? How hard it is not to lust? How hard it is not to exploit the oppressed? But thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has revealed to us that through faith in him, we can be right, we can be right before God. Our vertical and horizontal relationships can be mended. Because the constant guilt and shame that we feel because we're not good enough is right. We're not good enough. So we have to link up with the one who is. And there is only one. It is not our our faith that saves us. It is the one with whom that faith links us. It is the one with whom the Holy Spirit unites us. Peter, by his actions, suggested that Salvation had something to do with his being Jewish, and as I, as I said before, Paul in his other letters and in this one is perfectly fine and willing to talk about the benefits of Jewish heritage, but being more likely to be saved through faith in Christ is not one of those benefits. So instead, he points the Galatian church to the actual source of salvation and the actual content of salvation, which is what verses 17 to 21 are all about. The good news is of union with Christ. Let me read 17 and 18 again. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, meaning if we also broke the dietary laws or the ceremonial laws or circumcision and the like, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now don't miss this, y'all. What's Paul saying in verse 18? What does it mean to rebuild what I tore down? It means that in our natu- just in our natural state, the law stands over us in condemnation like a wall. Now, Christ, through his death and his resurrection, has torn down that wall. In the preaching of the gospel, that wall is constantly torn down. And Paul is pointing to the absurdity of teaching an alternate gospel and trying to put that wall back up. In other words, he's saying, I told you that you're not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Why are you listening to people accusing me of reversing all of that? Would that be walking in step with the gospel? No, it would, it, would, it would not only be ridiculous, but it would be sinful. If you are a Christian, you have been saved by the grace of God. Your worth is not determined by your works, but by Christ's perfect record, putting you in a position of unfathomable value, But the temptation still remains for us to value ourselves and others based on our work or others' estimation of us or what what others think of our work. And that way of considering ourselves is part of our walk, and it ain't walking in step with the gospel. To this there is good news that I will never tire of saying. Your worth is not in what you do. You can exhale. Who you are is hid, is hid with Christ. And that is the good news that Paul shouts in the remainder of this passage. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, which is precisely what I would do if I thought that my worth was in my work. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I'll say it again. Everything around you will scream at you for the rest of your life and say that you are what you do. And the gospel instead will say to you that you are what he has done. So what is this whole gospel? Well, it's what Calvin calls the double gift of justification and sanctification, where These two things are distinct but inseparable. And if you try to separate the two, it's like trying to tear Christ in two. But Paul doesn't make that mistake. Look back at verse 19. He says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This is a new kind of life that Christ has not only called us to, but he has given us the resources to live it. Read the rest of the book of Galatians for more on this, but we are encouraged that God has given us his spirit so that we can live To him, as Paul says. Dying to the law doesn't mean that the law is no longer good. It doesn't mean that the law no longer gives us guidance for how to live. It doesn't mean that murder, covetousness, lust, racism, or whatever, that any of these things are any less sinful or any less important for us to mourn over or any less important for us to weep over or any less important for us to mortify daily. Dying to the law means that not only are we declared not guilty, not only is the righteousness of Christ given to us like a garment, but it also means that the spirit that Christ has given us actively conforms us to the image of Christ. And by placing our faith in Christ, he links us to, he links us to himself in such a way that when he died, you and your sin died. When he got up, he brought you, the real you, up with him. And that means that the life that we live now as believers must be, and actually can be, a life lived by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. In other words, it ought to be a life walked in step with the truth of the gospel. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when we look at our lives, we ask the question, is this a life that looks like it was lived by a person who thinks that righteousness comes from the law? Do I live as though what really matters is my and others' as works? Or do I exhibit the grace and love that were lavished upon me in Christ? Do I walk in step with the gospel? Do I exhibit that grace and love to all of my neighbors, not just the neighbors who look like me or my neighbors who vote like me or my neighbors who talk like me or my neighbors who think like me? Do I only spend time with neighbors who look like me, vote like me, talk like me, think like me? Because if that's the case, for me to learn how to really love my neighbor, perhaps those circles may need to change. It's like when we pray for patience. Sometimes we make the mistake of praying for patience. Um, and, and the Holy Spirit doesn't just kind of show up and just kind of shower patience on you. Like that's not how this generally works. What often happens, at least in, at least in my case, is that God will put people in my life who really annoy me um, and and, and I'll just be caught up in how much this person annoys me. And, but, but I'll be reminded that I need to constantly be running, I need to, constantly be running to the Lord. Because my, my first priority in my relationships is not to get what I need out of these people, but to love them as Christ has loved me. And it's hard, especially because sometimes people get on your nerves. But the only way to learn to love your neighbor is to actually go out and try to love your neighbor. For a Christian to live as though righteousness is through the law, or through race, or ethnicity, or class, or whatever, or any other identifying marker besides union with Christ, the only source of righteousness. To act that way is to deny the work of Christ and to strip it of its marvelous worth. To live as though righteousness is through anything besides union with Christ is to spit upon the cross and to say that the Son of God died and was raised for nothing. Union with Christ is the good news. If you have placed your faith in him, Jesus Christ is with you by his, by his Spirit, guiding you and always shaping and molding and pruning you into a little Christ. And so to close, I want to go back to Peter. Paul doesn't tell us in his retelling whether or not Peter repented, but I think we can use what some preachers call our sanctified imagination uh, to find out. So... I'm assuming, through the testimony of the whole council of Scripture, that Peter was a Christian. So, as a follower of Christ with the indwelling Holy Spirit, I assume that he would have humbly accepted Paul's rebuke, repented, and believed the gospel. But did the Lord forgive him? I don't know. I mean, racism's pretty bad. I mean claiming that you're superior to someone else because of your ethnicity or race or gender or some other thing like that. I mean, it's a, pretty big, it's a pretty big prideful deal. Of course! Of course he was forgiven. Is there grace for the virulent racist? Of course there is! If you repent and believe in the gospel. Now, this does not mean that there aren't consequences. Repentance is not easy. It's not just a turning away from sin, but it's a turning to Christ. And so, practically, it might mean this. It might mean instead of making comments about groups of people and how they are, perhaps we ought to consider how to get to know, listen to, and love those people. We cannot love our neighbors, as Christ commands us to, if we do not know our neighbors. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the way to solve racism and all these issues is just for everyone to just make different friends. When someone tells you that a problem is structural, or institutional, or beyond just kind of these one-on-one relationships, we can't use individualistic means to solve it. This is what uh, some scholars have called the miracle motif, where a lot of people think that if we just evangelize, then racism and all of our social issues are just going to go away. That is both practically ineffective and theologically naive. We don't proclaim faith in Christ and then instantly get an injection of all heavenly wisdom and perfection. We are to go on to maturity, and we're actively involved in our sanctification and the regular mortification of our sins. And that's not just me saying it, that's Paul saying it in Romans 8.13, where he says, if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. We can't mortify those deeds if we don't recognize them. And so we must learn from our brothers and sisters, read the scriptures with our brothers and sisters, and fight with our brothers and sisters. Because the only way that the dark powers and principalities are beaten back is if they are named and also actively fought by each and every one of us, and all of us, not in our own strength, because we can't in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God himself. Because Christ has won the war. And it's time for us to stop watching and for us to fight in union with him and in union with one another. So let's walk in step with the truth of the gospel.